the college experience has become a runaway train for both parents and kids. The pressure for grades, the pressure to get a summer internship, the pressure to know what your major is, the social pressures, the dangers of drugs and alcohol and study aids, which is the use of Adderall, your friend's, you know, your friend's drugs so that you can stay up all night. It's an endless list of frightening things. And yet it's supposed to be the most exciting time for people. Well, how do you know what it's really like and what do you need to do to help your freshmen get into school and to survive their transition in school? I'm going to talk to the co-author of How to Survive Your Freshman Year and hear what current and recent students have to say about the inside story on the college experience. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert source, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. And I'm thrilled to be talking today to Allison Lee Cowan, the author of the newly revised How to Survive Your Freshman Year. Since its first printing 15 years ago, How to Survive Your Freshman Year has become somewhere between the Bible and the safety blanket for incoming students and their parents, trying to prepare for the often overwhelming process of leaving home and entering the highly competitive, socially challenging world of college. Unlike most college guides, How to Survive Your Freshman Year is written by the real experts on college experience, the current and the former students. You can learn more about Allison and the book at howisurvive.com. And the book is, of course, available on Amazon and at all major booksellers. So, Allison, thank you. And in fact, you're, I'm looking at you in person here. What a treat it is. A thrill for me, too. <laughs> you know, there are many people who say what a thrill it is to come to Bottom Line's offices. Must be our orange walls. They're invigorating, aren't they? Okay. Let's talk about college because I think, you know, as, as we talked about, like, the whole college process is, I don't know who it's more traumatic for and more fearful and more exciting for the parents or for the kids. It sounds and like you've been there. I have been there. I've had how many times? <laughs> I have two kids and I am now done. My second one just graduated this year. And very different kids and very different processes for each kid. And you have four kids, right? Right, three who have graduated and one who's still working his way through. So, and I think this is a really important aspect, like a great place to start. Thank you for interviewing me for this and coming up with this line of questioning. Um, I think it's important right out of the bat, um, and there are myths, well, I wanted to talk about the myths of college and the college experience. It's not the same. My two girls had incredibly different college experiences. My sister and I, believe it or not, went to the same college, the same small college and we had very different experiences just within that universe and how about you did you how were your experiences for your kids i think four kids four different schools different high schools everybody's different and has to find the right place for him or her right which is exactly what's going on in the book now because you have advice for everybody that's in the book and for people to learn depending on who they are how they can adapt and what what will be effective for them one of the distinguishing things about this particular book and guide, survival guide, is um, that you, we let you hear all sides. People don't always agree on the best way to handle a stressful situation, and we don't edit that out or pretend that there's a right answer. So, we, you know, I've, one of the ways I improved the book was I 
consolidated a lot of that so it's easier to process. It's all there in one place, but we let people hear the dissent. Well, but I think also it's important to know, again, there are the kids that are very self-directed and there are kids that, that need a little bit more devotion, more motivation or they're different communicators or they're interested in different activities or different personalities so that the book covers it all because you've got advice from everybody. Let's talk for a minute about the myths because I think just going into college and the expectations on both the parent sides and the and the kids sides I you know I, I make up my theories all the time so to me one of the biggest myths about college is that it's awesome and that it's going to be the most incredible experience for all involved and I think it's important that people understand there's there's none it's hard college isn't nirvana um, probably not for most people. It's a struggle, like everything else, and it's gotten a lot more stressful than it was when some of us went to college. That's clear. Um, one reason why I created a whole new chapter called Coping, which had never been in the prior editions, uh, because kids are not just imagining it. They are under more stress than they used to be. They're worried about job security. When they're finished, will they even have a job? Um, social media has them all living in a fishbowl. So they feel the pressure of how, what, how everybody else is doing, that they look around and can look on their phones and see. That creates a lot of pressure. Um, so they, they really do have a lot of problems that we didn't have in the old days when I think college was more fun. Yeah, college, I mean, when we went to school, I'll call it, it was just a transition. You continued to learn to think. You continued to learn to, to write. You learned a little bit of independence. You had kind of your jump off from, from you know, mom and dads to being out in the world. And now, as you say, there is so much pressure. And I think you know, one of the pressures you know, is getting a job and what's your major. When I took my younger daughter on college tours, everywhere you went, it was all, what's your major, what's your major? She had no clue in the world what was her major. And our running joke was that she'd just make them up every time. Today, she was a French major. Today, she was a, there's so much pressure on that. And people have this myth and this belief that they have to know what they want to be in I their path. I think that's the point of college is yeah. to be confused to be a little right. unsure of yourself and to explore a lot of things and possible lives right. and a lot of uh, from and listen to professors who might have some you know imagination of how your life might unfurl if you if you're open to it and then figure it out as you go what was the advice what, what was coming up in the book from the the participants so again that you had contributors basically thousands of college kids that were were giving their opinions on things what was the consensus among the students on picking a major um, I think they're, you know, they're, no, no pun intended, given where I'm sitting, but they're very bottom line oriented. We've never heard a bottom line pun. That's amazing. Right. Well, right. I, I kind of couldn't avoid it. Thank uh, you for using it. Right. They're, right. they're very bottom line oriented yes. and, and they're worried about jobs. And so, of course, they are interested in careers and those classes. But occasionally you would get this, you know, very refreshing gust from some student about the joy of being a little you know, uncertain or, or taking risks. And, and those are the voices I really loved in the book. Yeah. Um, the people who were very um, just candid about that, that they didn't have the answers. Well, and I also, I've known a bunch of kids who have changed their majors. You're, you know, you go into school and you know that there's doctors, lawyers, or Indian chiefs in the world. But they have no idea about so many other areas that they could explore. And it's not until, as you said, you go to the old days, you went to college to expose yourself and broaden. And I know a number of people who went into school and they thought they were going to major in whatever, fill in the blank, they were going to be pre-med or pre-law or anything. And then 
they changed and that was okay the world didn't come crashing down and i think parents need to know that like it's okay if your kid changes their major and changes their mind they're going to graduate kids can't really take those risks unless the parents support it yeah if they if they have crazy parents then they're not going to they're not going to feel confident doing those things which is an important lesson for the parents that are listening that you know, we have to get out of our kids' lives, and we're going to and, talk and about that in a minute. And but kids have the wrong parents; they should definitely swap them out. <laughs> I had a theory when my kids were young that all the kids should shift houses every six to nine months. Like you had your group of all the all the parents around, but every six to nine months, the kids would like they'd pick up from my house and go live at your house because they're polite to you. And then every six to nine months, when they started getting comfortable and sassy at your house, then they'd pick up and they'd go to another house. Sounds like a very crazy kibbutz that you're running. <laughs> I guess it could be. You know, you come up with these theories as your kid is, you know, your kid is looking, screaming at you about nothing, right? And going, you know, doing what kids do. You know, there must be some other way because I'm just not that bad a parent. Maybe I was. Who knows? All right. One other myth that I want to talk about, grades. You know, the, the pressure on the grades, and in fact, there's been great inflation at the schools because of the pressure on grades, pressure to go to graduate school. You had a quote in the book from Erica Siegel, Assistant Dean of Communications at Columbia. 4.0 is falsely viewed as a surrogate for students' net worth. That's wrong. It's important to make mistakes, and it's important to learn resilience. That grades, it's not all about the grades, and their, their success or failure as a human is not going to be about whether or not they got a 4.0. I promise you, I did not have a 4.0 when I graduated college. I, I had no idea what my GPA was when I was in college. I still am not quite sure. So I, I, but I'm not, you know, what, what, I, what worked for me that may not work for everybody else. But one thing that's very clear is that it's okay to fail. In fact, it's probably healthy to fail and it might even be the smartest thing you do for your career is fail a little. People admire that. The, the grit that it takes to fail and pick yourself up. It's, so I think in some ways it's never been more fashionable. And if kids are looking for role models of people who didn't even particularly do very well in college who did fine in life, like Steve Jobs or George Bush or J.K. Rowling, or my favorite is Robert Scott, a uh, fellow who went to the South Pole, and he was considered a daydreamer and just a total loser in the classroom right. because he was always thinking beyond. So I think they have to really, students have to really take a chance on themselves and not be so fearful about the grade they're going to get in any particular class but what they're going to learn well it's not all about the grades I mean that there's they've learned that the, the classes themselves have come to this kind of regurgitation testing process but obviously that's not what happens in life it's not what happens in the real world we need them to consolidate their intelligence and that as you say when you fail it's resilience. It's how did you how did you pick yourself up? And that's so much more important than being able to simply regurgitate an answer. And I know that um, medical schools are actually changing where they don't necessarily want the tippy top kids in the class. They want rounded humans. They need to have people that have emotional IQ and emotional intelligence to be able to sit next to a, a patient's bed. Right, that it's not just about can they memorize every bone in your body and every drug in the in the uh, formulary. Well, I know I'd prefer a doctor like that than one who is just tippy top, as you say, and um, but had no emotional intelligence. Yeah. So, but I think it's important again. 
parents, as you're start, as you're going, watching your kids go away, and you've got this vision of what what your kids are going to be doing at school and how they're going to perform and what what their outcome is going to be, you're really trying to create humans. You're not trying to get machine automatons. You're not. It's not about simply driving them into grad school. That you're trying to help them become independent, independent, independent thinking adults, and helping them through through successes and failures along that way. The book is really geared towards uh, high school seniors heading off to college maybe this summer, this fall. It's really written by young people for young people. That's not to say that I, you know, you're not allowed to read the book too if you're a parent with, right. with a child in that position because you'll learn a lot also. Right. But um, that's sort of a secondary reader for the book. Well, no, I understand, but I think just right. in terms of parents understanding, you know, as because mm -hmm. we're talking in this, they're probably as much as I would love to wish that I had 18-year-olds listening to me, they, I don't. So I've got, you know, who's listening to us but their parents. So I'm trying to get the parents to realize, A, buy this book and give it to your kids because it has, you know, great insights and tips for your kids, but parents have these unrealistic expectations of what college is going to be, is or is, or is not, and they need to adapt. And learn how to let go a little. Exactly. Sure. All right. So let's talk. Let's let's jump to that college experience and let's talk about what some of those, um, you know, uh, challenging the most challenging areas for kids and parents are. And I wanted let's talk about that independence and for parents and kids adapting to independence, especially you know a lot of these kids. We we talk about chopper parents and parents that have managed every aspect of these kids. They're scheduling their activities. How hard is that on the kids? What do, you know, so parents, you know, I've, I used to watch kids that like, the, the, or you've heard all these horror stories of the kids that were the most controlled by their parents. They go to college and they crash and burn or they go crazy. Talk about that for a second. Well, I, I think kids have a lot of defenses <laughs> if their parents are a little overbearing or overly controlling. I think they've learned how to use technology quite well to deal with that, you know, to text their parents and, um, when, when it's convenient and um, have the conversation when they want to have the conversation, but um, but you know parents have to give their kids a chance to to screw up a little bit too. Maybe sleep through a class um, because you know stop waking them up in the morning and make, you know if they're going to have to be responsible for getting around on their schedule themselves, um, eating properly, all that, all the, the sort of grown-up decisions they're getting a chance to try on for size. So what were the kids in the book saying about their relationship with their parents when they got to school? Like do they how well, do they get the parents out of their lives or how do they, you know, suddenly do they want the parents in their lives? Do they not? Do the parents have to push some of them out of the nest? No, I'm not gonna wake you up every morning anymore. Here's your alarm clock, figure it out. Well I, I love this very uh, pithy bit of advice from somebody at UPenn. Make it clear to parents and grandparents that surprise visits are not a good idea given how often you will be at the library. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're living their lives at the library. Of course, right. of course. So, I, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a war that's existed for the ages. You know, wh where are the kids and what are they doing? And of course they don't need you, but then they do need you. And they will call with problems and you're going to want to help. So, and then, so in terms of like, I've heard stories of parents that get in the middle of managing the kids' classes, helping them pick their schedules, again, mm. their majors, how, what, what's the what's the line? Like, how much should the kids do it on their own, and how much do the kids want their parents in there? And should the parents say no? Figure this out. Actually, the, the colleges want nothing to do with the parents. Right. Once the kids are at school, they're most of them are eighteen, and parents are not even allowed to 
receive information they might be very accustomed to getting about their kids, like grades, health information that they had in high school. The students, and I address this in the book, um, there's this law called FERPA about the privacy of students' records, and students have to actually go to a lot of trouble, backflips, to sign, uh, sign waivers if they want to allow their parents to talk to deans and find out information about school. So kids really have to take it on their own shoulders when they go off to learn how to deal with the scheduling issues, the communication issues, uh, all the living issues, the, the schools do not want to be talking to parents. Right, but a lot of the kids may. So how much does a kid, so a kid goes to school, again, these kids, it's a really hard transition. These kids have been, had everything taken care of for them, everything managed, and now you can't just throw them into the deep end of the pool. So, you know, do parents need to start, kind of have a conversation beforehand, start educating them, start talking about some life skills besides separate your darks and your whites when you go to do the laundry? Um, so that the kid, it's not like you're cutting it off. Like there really has to be a, a balance or a transition so that the kids, because they had no skills. These parents didn't give the kids the skills to start with. Well, those kids may take more than four years to finish college, <laughs> which is becoming a thing too. Yeah. You know, not everybody's finishing now in four years and you have to become more accepting about that and supportive. Yeah. Um, those so kids may need a, a few, a, you know, two, Two shots, you know, take a gap year in the middle if it's not working out and come back when they're a little older. Which a lot of them do, or they go, right. you know, they go abroad, or sometimes they'll take a gap after high school, or they might take a break in their colleges, or they might have go to, go to college and realize college isn't for everyone, which kind of goes back to, you know, the statement above that we talked about before of parents needing to understand, like, there's, there's so much pressure now, especially sociopolitically, for everybody to go to college, and that may or may not be the right thing for them. Right. I'm proud of some of the quotes we have here of people who flushed out, you yeah. know, who didn't finish, and and why, and what they learned from it. And, and there is some sort of um, um, wistfulness that they express about not taking the chance they had seriously enough. So they blew it, and they, they, they're very candid about it. So it is an extraordinary opportunity to get to go to one of these American colleges and what you get to learn and do and try out for the four years that you're there. And kids shouldn't uh, be nonchalant about it or, or um, you know, cavalier. It's important that they, that they do what's expected of them also. But if it's too difficult, when they, when they head off, they can always try again later. Yeah. One strategy I've heard, um, actually, which is a really interesting one, saves money as well, is for kids to start out at like a community college, so for the first or second year, and then transfer into a four-year school or a more prestigious school, so that A, they save money on the courses, B, if they weren't quite ready, if their high school grades weren't that great, gives them some time to mature, and then you, know, you get your good transcripts, and then you transfer in, and your diploma says the same thing for whether you've been there for four years, three years, or two years. Right, you, you, just, you might be missing out some of the the extracurricular opportunities you, you would have had if you had gone to the college of your dreams right away, but um, it's, it's certainly a path for some people. The other thing I learned that was very eye-opening is that kids should not work more than 20 hours a week in all likelihood if they want to succeed at college, even if they think they have to because of financial pressures. And they're good kids, they want to work, they want to uh, help pay the bills, but once there's a lot of studies that some of which I quote in the book where if you go past 20 hours a week and these outside paid activities mm -hmm. 
you have a very high likelihood of failing, of, of not finishing, because really? you can't. It's too much. It's, it's like having a full-time job and all the expectations that come with that and also trying to be a full-time student. So people can work, but they, they should really try to ma structure their lives so they don't take on too much. How many hours a day should or did, did your students, the students that reported in, I don't know if they gave you these stats, but does if they, did, if they had no other activities, if they just went to class and did their homework, how many hours a week is that? Oh, I think it's, um, I'd need more caffeine to be able to do that now. <laughs> but I mean, is it 20, because like, they don't go to class that often. They might have three hours of class a day on average. And then, you know, I don't know, a few hours of homework so that there is, there is time on the yeah. outskirts for their activities, whether it be at sports or music or debate club or... Right, and Frisbee, Dinner, and, yes. and, but also all, you and know, guitar, part of college right. are all the conversations you're having outside of class with yes. the smart people around you, if yeah. you're lucky enough to go to a school where people care about college, yeah. and with professors, but also with other students, and, and maybe arguing a little, or, or meeting people who challenge yeah. you, because they're unlike the people back home. Which is great. Was there anything in there about time management? You know, again, these kids came from very structured environments, and now suddenly nobody's telling them when to get up. No one in particular is telling them when to go to bed. Right, and they think their little magic phones are the answer to all of that. So I do have some advice in here um, tested by folks like Anthony Wallace, who's terrific, one of the contributors, uh, who philosophy major from Arizona, very talented fellow. Um, things like old-fashioned alarm clocks that are very annoying, that are hard to ignore and will get you out of bed. Uh, they roll around, you have to chase them to shut them up. It's, it's not as simple as a phone which you can swipe and ignore. Uh, one of them, just for the record, uh, doubles as a sex toy, but only for women, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> well, sorry guys, they're it's all about the women. Right, they're working on another one. But and don't use those in the wait. shower. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, how about, so now, so now your kid's in school, and they're having fun, and they're off and running. How much should these kids, should, I don't like the word should, but so there I am, this college kid, I'm now at college, and I got my new friends, and I'm doing all this stuff. How much do I want to tell my parents about what I'm doing? Oh, I, I think that probably would fill a different book. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if I have the answer to that. I would hope that kids would tell their parents everything that's important when they're mm -hmm. ready to tell them, but they don't. Obviously, they yeah. don't. They, they're, this is their turn to go to school and not the parents. Parents already went to school or could have or should have, and this is all about their life. So I think parents have to really welcome any communication they get and appreciate the generosity that is behind it. Should parents call their kids? If they do, the kids won't pick up if they don't want to talk to them. <laughs> That's what texting is all about. <laughs> Should they set up like weekly phone calls? Like, or everything's yeah, different depending no. on the individual. Mo most of the kids said right. they, you know, it's like it's a little like the old days. They'd call on, you know, Sundays. They'd have right. a long, longer chat with parents, yeah. and um, and but some of them are very connected to their parents, and they're texting them all day. Yeah, talking like, to mom all the time. Yeah. So it's it really is what kind of a relationship you have with your children as they're setting off. My kids would usually call me when they're walking across campus. Exactly. Like if they were walking home from the library right. or something right. like that. Mine, mine usually does it when she's online at a food cart and then she has to interrupt me because right. she's placing her order. Right. Or oh, sorry, mom. Right. Yeah, just a second. And then right. I'm having, you know, french fries with that, please. And then back to me. And then right. what's, what's I, ingenious about those phone calls I've discovered is there's an end to them. 
so they can hang up on you and you can't talk to them all day. They say, oh, I'm, I, I'm at my class, I have to go. Yeah. And there's that built-in end to the conversation. So I think that's why they do it. But you get that little touch. You know they're alive, you, don't, you hear how they sound. Right, and what they're eating. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, that too. All right, let's talk about roommates. Probably the the biggest, scariest thing, you, you know, classes. Somehow, somehow classes becomes the least of it. Like grades are important, but the discussions about college, it's not about classes. It's about roommates and the roommate choice and the friends and all that sort of stuff. So um, what's what's the overall best strategies? Was there, was there a best or the different strategies for finding that roommate? And, and you know finding that match and how should you how should you think about your your freshman roommate well way back when colleges just did that they they did the matching matchmaking for you now I think kids uh, sometimes have more power and ability to find their own match and they use social media to do that and and uh, present themselves as a team to the school before all the room room rooms are assigned um, but there's still sort of a randomness to it that's part of the whole point, I think, which is you know maybe living with someone who's not like the folks you lived with back home or shared a room with back home uh, if you had siblings. Um, and I don't know if you can really micromanage it too much or overthink it. Um, I mean, you can try because no one wants to be stuck with someone very annoying all year. And, and some, so, but, I, but I think there's gotta be uh, some openness to maybe that first year will be a little bit of an adventure. There's one, one person from William and Mary who gave me this quote, it's hard to tell what to expect after filling out the roommate survey. Half the kids who say they like neat rooms actually do like neat rooms, and the other half only say that in order to snag a neat roommate who will do all the cleaning. I read that. I thought that was the funniest stra strategy. So I don't know what to make of that. So what do you do? If you read this, now you have this information. Do you say you're neat or do you say you're not neat? I, I, I can't help. I... I'm a little bit um, overwhelmed by that, but um, and and there clearly are a lot of horror stories in the book about wacky roommates who uh, were over the line. People who this term that I learned sexiled you because they want to have sex, so you have to leave the room and go. You have to figure out where to sleep. It's the towel on the doorknob, something like that. And in fact, I think one of those those um, the sexiled or one of those quotes from where in there was from my college. <laughs> I won't ask if you knew that person. But I'm way too old for that, but right. it was. Right. But the worst, even worse than that, are the people who don't sexile you, but they have sex in the room while you're there. Right. And that happens. So it's a frightening world out there, and people have to be prepared, I think, for the, for the disruptions in their life they might have, or they have to be sure to get a single. That's well, they, really the answer. And then they don't have the joys of having a roommate. But you can as freshman year. Often they'll rarely put freshmen in singles. That I think there's, um, you know, there's two schools of thought in terms of you want your roommate to be your BFF, right, and, and your best friend, and, and you know, you're going to have this soulmate thing, which my older daughter actually did, and she's like a daughter to me now, her, her roommate. They've lived together for six years. Not, not six years of college. They were four years of college and two years after. Um, and then... The other school, which is you just have to have someone that you're compatible with because you don't want the pressure. A lot of people, like they didn't want the pressure of having their best friend being the roommate because you end up getting very insular. Mm -hmm. So that if it's somebody that you can simply com be compatible with from a living situation, now you are both free to join your clubs, et cetera. Right. One, one of the more touching stories in the book is about going with your roommate um, back home with them for vacation and not going to some you know place in Florida or spring break, but actually visiting 
their people and go and seeing, you know, meeting their parents and going and learning about, uh, you know, their home life. And some of the best memories these kids have is like inviting friends over for those spring breaks, roommates, friends, close friends, and going to their homes. So I think that's a really wonderful idea people should consider. Yeah, no, it's exciting because you, you are coming into contact with people, especially um, depending on, like some kids, if you go across country, go to a whole other area of the country from where you grew up and you're coming in contact with a whole different world of people. Um, I saw a number of things in the book where people said specifically, don't room with your friends. Because sometimes, you know, when, when um, a lot of kids, I know um, Midwest, a lot of them will just go to the state schools. You know, the East Coast, West Coast, it's all about the private schools. But Midwest, they all go to the state schools. So all their friends are going as well. And there seemed to be kind of a, I'd say a definite majority consensus, don't room with your friends from, from home because it becomes limiting. And also often you change and they don't and you end up, you know, they're, they're not your friend anymore. Right. Is that what you saw? Yeah, it's, it's uh, one of the issues where there's a lot of back and forth too. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things also that I noticed, and I don't know, you know, again, what was in the book or with your kids, um, that your friend groups change and they should, kids shouldn't worry about this. Like your, your friend group, initially when you get to college, it's your dorm friends. It's your roommates or your dorm friends is where you first start out because that's kind of your first circle of sphere of, of um, touching. But then as you join clubs, as you, you are exposed to different courses and things, your friend group changes. My younger daughter evolved so much from freshman year to senior year in terms of her interests, the groups that she hung with, entirely different group of people. And that's okay. That's part of that transition as well, that, that there shouldn't be so much pressure, again, that you have to find your, your soulmates your freshman year. Right, and friends let you down too. Um, and when you're sick, who comes and makes you soup or checks on you and makes sure that you are getting your work from class that you're missing. So. I think one of the big journeys kids make in those years is figuring out who their real friends are. It's not always the first group they thought. It sometimes it emerges later who the really quality friends are. Yeah, and I think giving having these kids give themselves permission to evolve. You know, and it's it's such an exciting time for kids going to college. I'll now state the obvious: you're starting fresh. Whatever you were in high school, you were the cheerleader. You were the you know, the band nerd, you were the whoever it was. If you, if you were the kid who accidentally got walked up the hall and had some spot on your pants and were humiliated and forever in high school where you were called spotty pants, that's gone. And they have this absolute clean slate to be whatever and whoever they want in college. Until they mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> or pick a different problem. Yeah, but uh, my point okay. is like they're, they're on this super exciting path of of regrowth and unpeeling and finding out who they want to be as they go on this their next chapter of life and build their their new land and to give themselves the the space and place for that exploration yes yes <laughs> okay you're nodding um okay let's talk about i think one of the scariest things um for parents in particular um well for students but parents abs uh, absolutely which is safety you know there are horror stories um of i know far too many i have too many stories in my head of kids that went to college and died um through both my daughters um and there are so many ways that kids can get themselves into trouble so you know i guess just 
general overview of what's, what's the general overview statements and views from the kids on safety? Well, um, I think they're right to be uh, mindful of all that. And as usual, they place too much trust in their phones. So knowing that, we provide, share with them a lot of apps they can use to kind of um, help uh, put another set of eyes on them as they walk home at night or uh, make sure their friends know they're walking home at night alone by themselves. So there's some, there are some decent apps that they can load on their phones. That so are what are those apps? There are apps I think Circle that somebody- Circle of Six, I mean, there's a whole list of them in the book. So these are apps that somebody can, I'll call it GPS track you. There was yeah. something in the news the other day that right. some, some daughter, a high schooler, drove off a cliff and the mom found the daughter through the GPS tracking app that she had for the daughter. Right. And thankfully, the daughter was alive and, you know, everything ended up okay. But right. But the kids aren't always comfortable with having their parents track them when they're that age. Yes. But they don't mind their friends knowing exactly where they are. <laughs> so they, these are sort of designed with that mentality in mind. Yeah. So we have suggestions about that. Well, and the kids need to um, be smart. I mean, sometimes when they've grown up in their little small towns and now suddenly they're in the city. Right. So they need to take the initiative to keep themselves safe. Right. So they need to hear some life lessons about mm -hmm. um, making sure that you're the only one pouring your drinks or you don't uh, accept drinks at parties because of people could tamper with them or they could be spiked. Uh, and that happens a lot. So they need to hear that and understand how important that is. Um, we have a lot of very brave stories in the book about sexual assault and how, you know, how common that is and frightening. So I think... Uh, Everybody needs to read those stories. And, and what is it, what's the common denominator in that happening? Like, where was the vulnerability? The excessive use of alcohol usually creates a situation where things are happening and people are not always uh, um, uh, able to give consent. They're not, you know, legally or, or otherwise. And uh, so th these are very... Um, tricky situations, but, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying at all that knowing this information is gonna prevent anything or prevent everything, but I think students really need to know this information so that they have a good idea of it. Even young men, I mean, one of the, my favorite bits of advice here that I was most grateful for is a young man from Dartmouth who said something like, if you're too drunk to text your mom a coherent text, you're too drunk to hook up with anyone. And I was like, thank you, <laughs> that's, so, that's so smart. Right. But are there, I mean, are there also, I'll call it some, basic levels of responsibility that you know rules of life that that the kids and you know I, I'm a daughter I'm a, I've got daughters so I was always worried about their safety um, but rules of thumb like don't get pissed drunk when you right when you just simply don't especially if you're you know and if, if you're going to have a wingman right don't go to parties alone again especially if you're a girl I don't think I ever went to a party alone um, and or don't and then make sure you don't leave alone like that that are their their basic rules of smarts that these kids need to a be responsible for themselves but also tips for what they build into their lives as they go out and then when you go to city schools same deal you don't want to go to bars yourself right uh and and really a lot of the dangers are and hazards are very much present in freshman year when the kids are really making this grand transition and there's very exciting so um, some of those those rules are, are a real downer and 
they may not believe the need to follow them or think about them. They just want to have fun. So uh, it, it's, you know, if, if a kid will take the time and make an investment in his or herself to read some of these other stories from other young people, uh, I think it might alter their behavior a little. Yeah, and I think, you know, like freshman girls in particular, I remember when I went to school, they were the, pun intended, they were the pretty girls on campus, right? That not only did they have, they were meeting their universe of other freshmen, but all the upper class guys absolutely had their eyes on the younger girls. Who who was the new crop that was coming in? And there you are, you're 18, 19 years old, and these men are hitting on you and they're coming up to you and you feel, you know, both flattered and intimidated at the same time it's really hard right so practicing that in your mentally like what would happen if and what what would i do if and it's good if if people have a chance to sort of uh, do a little thought experiment before those situations are they're facing them yeah one of the hardest things um and i talk you talk to my girls about this a lot is the ability to say no um and to say no with a quiet confidence Right, somebody you're at a party again. That hunky guy with his bright blue eyes comes, looks at you, and says, "Here, do you want a drink?" And to simply, you know, and simply to say, "No, I'm good, thanks. I'm right. happy with my cup." You know, or it, always ha- have a cup of water in your hand so they think you're drinking, but you're not. Oh, actually, my daughter contributed that uh, bit of advice to the book. <laughs> always, always have the a red, red solo, solo cup. cup. With, yes, with, always had that red solo cup said, with, but fill it with water. Who? invented this right. who made these red solo cups did they know <laughs> this was what it was going to be used for someday but that's actually that bit of advice made it into the book yes. and it was compliments of my oldest daughter well done oldest daughter right um the other thing you mentioned was about unfortunately people who don't survive freshman year and and uh one of the essays i'm most grateful for really came from um three parents who very generously and kindly wrote an essay for me because they each had a child who did not survive freshman year as a result of hazing. And this is a very important topic too for anyone who thinks they want to join a frat or a sorority. There is a lot of hazing despite what all the denials. Um, there's, hazing takes lots of forms. It's not, it's not all just drinking. Some of it is psychological hazing and abuse. And kids don't really know they're being hazed when it's happening if they don't have some experience like what hazing even is. Or they, they, may, it may, they may be deep in before they recognize that they're being hazed. You know, someone blindfolded you, took you to a field, took away your phone, and disappeared. And what's going to happen? And you may, you know, that's, that's hazing. So I have some very brave stories um, from people who have been hazed and then recognized it and spoke out. Some of them paid a price in terms of their friendships, um, weren't popular as a result, but I think people need to read that if they are going to start, you know, enter Greek life, because uh, they have to have eyes open. So there's comments in the book or suggestions in the book for what to do if you feel like you've been hazed. Well, how to avoid it mm-hmm. as much as possible, how to recognize it, how to avoid it, and not to put yourself in a situation if you don't want to be, where you will be, you know, things will be done to you or will be expected to do things that could be very harmful, land you in the hospital. For Greek life. So hazing, yeah. interestingly now, in Sarah's twisted world of watching the, the socio-political culture on campuses, hazing is taking other forms now, too, in terms of intolerance of contrary opinions. 
that it's not, you know, everyone knows about Greek life hazing, right? So that's fine and, you know, tied up naked without your phone in a field. That's classic. But now if you wear the wrong t-shirt, if you say the wrong thing, there's a, a bullying and intimidation, a social intimidation and an intolerance that is all over the campus. And how do, how do kids adapt to that? How can they explore new ideas when they're in an environment that's intolerant of understanding and, and even just discussing different ideas? Well, um, one is I hope they picked a college that was already sort of had a good record on this, where people have permission to dissent. It's and that would be which college? <laughs> let, me, let me give you one hand to count on oh. right now. Well, uh, it, it's a, it, is a, it is a pervasive problem at a lot of campuses where uh, people don't always feel like they have permission to dissent because of the reasons you describe, and, and that's really tragic. I don't even say unfortunate. I think it's tragic if that if the ability to have a conversation on a college campus really becomes threatened mm -hmm. by this kind of mob mentality. And it's so the, pro the professors as well. It's not just the students. It's in the classroom. Yeah, that's true. So you do have to have conversations with your kid before they go off about what it's safe to discuss or what how to how to express themselves in a safe safe enough way so that they don't uh, they're not pummeled for having you know the freedom of thought that they have um, and it, it's a little tricky it's trickier than it used to be we have a whole section on freedom of speech where we uh, hear hear from young people on this topic and um, but it, it's a messy world out there so where was the consensus in the inputs in the book in terms of are they um, are they, I'll call it, happy with this kind of, you know, view-dominant world? Or, do, you know, across all viewpoints, do they want to be able to be heard and to speak freely and to wear freely? I think you ha they have to, you know, we want our kids to have spines and be able to say the things they truly believe. I would hope that they don't, muzzle themselves or censor themselves. That's as bad as censorship, self-censorship. Yes. So if, if, if your community is putting a chill on your ability to be you and say the things mm -hmm. you believe, then that's terrible. Then maybe you need different friends or maybe you need to repot yourself somewhere else. But I'm not sure you're going to fix it. I mean, you can try standing up to I should hope that we can fix it. because telling you you're wrong before they've even heard you say anything. Right. You haven't even quite finished your sentence. But if it really, if you can't persuade them, or at least have your turn to talk, then um, then you may need to repot yourself. But I, I also think all of us need more practice listening. We do. We like talking, as this demonstrates. But we, we need to hear hear what the other people are saying too, and that's an important life skill for our kids. I'm sure that they need more practice listening to other people. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. All right. Let's talk about one other really dangerous thing for kids, which is um, the Adderall. Ah. world let's talk about drugs yeah it has a nice euphemism it's called study aids study aids yes okay, so I did I do have something in the book about that I have some shocking statistics about how many kids admit using somebody else's prescription medicine for that purpose yeah. and, and for anyone let me just clarify what you and I know what we're talking about so Adderall Ritalin or the drugs that are given to kids on ADD with ADD it's speed and what happens at colleges is that kids will use other people's 
medication because if they feel like they need to pull an all-nighter, they think that it makes them think more clearly, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this drug abuse going on of these prescription medications across young people. They're doing it when they get out of school as well. The young adults, my daughter was studying for her Series 7 test, and there were other kids that also were doing it, and they were, they were using other, you know, Adderall and Ritalin to do it. Now, the interesting thing, I will just say this, and then I'll let you talk like, you, like you're ready to, um, just, just scientifically, it doesn't work. We've had a different conversation with Bob Stutman we were talking to about who was um, the district head DEA of New York, and he was talking about that these kids think that taking Adderall will help them. It doesn't. It doesn't help them learn. It doesn't help them be more effective. With that, what do we got from the book? Well, they also become um, dependent on it and the idea they don't think they can succeed anymore without it. That, that seems to happen. So it is, it is risky to go that path. It's rampant, though. It really is rampant mm -hmm. on these campuses where the kids are sometimes popping pills to get through it. And, and that's coming from deadlines. social pressure, though, or social beliefs. There's nothing scientific they're doing. This okay, is simply sure. peer pressure, yeah? But So I, I, I practically fell off my chair that 9% of the kids who were in this rigorous survey, a national survey, admitted to using other people's prescription drugs as study aids. And so right. that means it's probably higher because probably not everybody admitted mm -hmm. doing it. Um, so we, we, dis we have some discussion of that and even practical things like if you're well if you're a kid who's really prescribed these drugs maybe you need a safe in your room like you know not, not a giant safe but maybe you need to lock up your drugs instead of leaving you know the old days we were worried leave money out that it might not be there when you got home if your door was open but now don't assume that if you leave ca casually your pills out that they'll be there when you come home and you need them so lock them up um, I think there's even some ethical issues that kids should consider before they go down that route, but that's not always the thing they want to really ponder. Uh, they're, they're more success-oriented. They think, they think it's helping somebody else sitting to their right and their left, and so they're the only ones who wouldn't be doing it, mom, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it, it's definitely a problem. Yeah. I mean, so many places. So that's a problem that, the, again, and some of that cycles back to this pressure to perform. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, the, the pressure for grades, the pressure to compete, the, the pressure to um, be good enough, the, the pressure to be, um, you know, perceived as perfect or, you know, all those other things that they put on themselves in order to do it versus to just go on the college ride, enjoy, learn, absorb, and have a, a rich experience. I, one of my other favorite uh, quotes from the book is it has to do with um, extracurricular activities, and it's from a woman who said um, that she tried archery and karate in college, and she wasn't good at either of them, but it was really fun being bad at something new. And I thought <laughs> I love this woman, so she has the right idea. I think that's perfect. I think that that sums up kind of what college should be. It's learning, you know, expanding your knowledge of the things that you knew, and then learning a whole other broad array of things. All right, Allison Lee Cowan, your book, How to Survive Your Freshman Year. Thank you so much. Any parting pearl that you'd like to leave with anybody? Um, it's hard to do this with a podcast, but the book actually has some delightful cartoons by Lisa Rothstein, who's very gifted, and her cartoons are now appearing in The New Yorker. So she has a very hip style that really captures the zeitgeist of the modern college campus. And if you don't want to listen to me talk, you know, you can just look at the cartoons. 
Well, and again, the book, it's, I, I mean this in the best way, it's a flip book. You don't have to read it from start to finish. Any page you open up to has a pearl of wisdom on it by, by you know, the people that are in the know, by the other students who have actually experienced it. So thank you so much, Allison. You can buy the book, as I said, How to Survive Your Freshman Year, HowISurvive.com. Get more information on Allison and the book. And thank you so very much. Thank you. I'm talking to Allison Lee Cowan, author of How to Survive Your Freshman Year, about the biggest traps and pitfalls incoming college students and their parents face as they begin this exciting chapter of their lives. Allison has gone straight to the top experts about the college experience, not the deans, not the administrators. She's spoken to the current and recent college students in order to get the inside scoop on what readers need to know. Speaking directly to America's leading experts is what our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, is all about. We work with thousands of top experts, not just in education, but on all aspects of your life, including managing the healthcare system, financial planning, living a healthy life, how to save money on travel, insurance, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.